myself and burning both ends. You can't find yourself if you ain't looking. Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Wither Away by Cutler Station, a band out of Vincent, Ohio. Cutler Station is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about them and let you listen to that entire song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akrobeka Journal. Hi, everyone. Well, tonight, we're going to Columbiana County. That's on the state's eastern border, a rural region right in the heart of Steel Country. And the thing about Columbiana is, you know, it's dotted with these small communities that always sounded like a United Nations roll call to me. They've got East Liverpool, Lisbon, East Palestine, and Salem. But our case is in an even tinier village there called Rogers, whose population in 2010 was the grand sum of 237 people. Now, we're going to go back just a few more years from there. We're going to go to 2005. And it was the end of summer, August 30th to be exact. And at first glance, there was no reason for troopers to suspect that the car that had run off the lonely and desolate stretch of Greenwood Road was anything more than an accident. After all, it had been raining heavily all morning. It was still coming down as cruisers pulled up to the car at 10.30 a.m. The Ford probe was partially over an embankment. It was still running. Its driver's side window was partway down. And inside was the car's owner, Michael Williams, a 37-year-old who lived just a little further down Greenwood Road. He was dead. That morning, Mike had finished the graveyard shift at the V&M Steel Company in Youngstown. It was his eighth straight 12-hour shift. He was a piercer at the mill, operating a machine that hollows out steel before it's made into pipes. We know a little bit about Mike because his mom, Shirley Wynn, posted a story about her only child on the internet several years ago. Michael Lee Williams was born in Huntington Park, California, near Los Angeles, just a few days before Christmas in 1967. As he lay in the hospital nursery the day he was born, his dad, Eugene Williams, said he looked like a little weightlifter. And that turned out to be somewhat prophetic because he did indeed become a fitness enthusiast and a weightlifter. Mike's father was from Wellsville. That's another town in Columbiana County. And at some point, the family ended up back in Ohio, settling in Lisbon. 
That's where Mike began his lifelong affair with horses after getting his first pony. He named it Crud. Mike graduated from Beaver Local High School in 1986 and became active in a local rodeo group called Hopple's Rodeo. Friends started calling him Rodeo. He loved being a cowboy, and his favorite vacation was taking long trail rides in the Pocono Mountains. By 2005, Mike was living his life on a 31-acre spread he called his little piece of heaven, complete with three horses. He'd grown into a handsome man. Television talk show host Nancy Grace once said he looked like a movie star. He loved to dance, and he was a real charmer, but if he played hard... He also worked hard, maintaining his homestead and doing those long shifts as a steel worker. He had no reason to expect that August 30th would be his last shift, that he wouldn't even make it home. He was just a quarter of a mile from his driveway when troopers found him inside that car, slumped over the steering wheel. It didn't take long, however, to learn that it wasn't a car crash that took Michael's life. A trooper leaned into the car and moved the gear from drive to park, then shut off the engine, while paramedics with the Tri-County Ambulance were checking his pulse. There was none. The patrol tried to preserve the scene from the heavy rain by putting a tent over the car before Columbiana County Sheriff deputies even arrived. County Coroner Investigator Fran Rudabaugh went to the scene and ordered Mike's body transported to the hospital in Salem. His vehicle was towed to the sheriff's department garage. Before the day was done, coroner Dr. William A. Graham performed an autopsy and ruled William's death a homicide. The cause? He had been beaten to death with a hard object about his head, trunk, and extremities. Presumably, he had then been placed back in the car and the car positioned to drive off the road. Well, who would want Mike dead? There was no clear motivation, and that vacuum, not surprisingly, opened the door to wild speculation. Mike did have a girlfriend at the time he was killed, a woman named Rosie. He'd been seeing her for a few weeks, and he did once have a major argument with her ex-boyfriend. But the family didn't feel that was enough to suggest a fatal feud. Others wondered if maybe Mike had been involved in drugs, maybe killed during a drug deal gone bad. But those who knew Mike best said he loved staying in shape. He didn't even smoke. They couldn't imagine him having anything to do with drugs. Besides, his toxicology report came back clean. Then there was a story about two men who were supposed to show up at Mike's house to help him put a roof on his barn the same day he died. They never showed up for that job, but others said they spotted them going to Mike's property after his death had been made public and taking something away. One of those men was known to have had a recent fight with Mike over money he owed Mike. It seemed likely that Mike knew his killer, maybe even pulled over on the road for a familiar face. His car window was partly down in spite of the rain suggesting he might have been willingly communicating with someone. Unfortunately, that open window also washed away potential evidence before troopers found the car. There were so many rumors 
according to Belinda Puchaida. She's Mike's cousin and has spent the years after his death trying to keep his case in the public eye. Belinda said dozens of people claim to have info, everything from psychics wanting to charge several hundred dollars for what they knew, to the variety of my brother's uncle's nephew's best friend heard something. She told a reporter, as a family member, you're looking for someone to blame. We want answers. It's not going to bring Mike back or make things easier to accept. We just want to know someone will be punished for taking Mike's life. The Columbiana County Sheriff investigators followed up on various leads. There were six people of interest at one point, but no evidence to support charges against any of them. In 2016, more than a decade after Mike's murder, the case was stone cold. Sheriff Ray Stone told the Lisbon Morning Journal, we don't have any viable suspects to question at this point. Over the years, Mike's family sought outside help, hoping fresh eyes might turn up something new. They hired a private investigator, and they did avail themselves of a couple of those psychics. In one case, a psychic described two men that closely resembled two local residents with criminal records. One of those two men had died in prison. The other was given a polygraph and passed. The case was even featured on CNN's Nancy Grace and Encore TV. The family said those private efforts provided them with more information than the sheriff and prosecutor had been willing to share, but not enough to solve this mystery. Mike's mom also asked Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigation to get involved, and the BCI did. But in the end, all they really could do was confirm that no stone had been left unturned. Shirley Wynn didn't live to see her son get justice. She died in 2016 at the age of 70. But on that website, where she wrote about her son a couple of years after his death, she gave us insight as to the agony she had to live with. Our family is devastated and angry. No one can ever know how I feel to have my beloved son ripped out of my life. I will never forget Mike or the cruel way he was taken from us. It causes me much pain. His murder has broken my heart and hurt me clear through every part of my body and soul. It is almost more than I can bear. Now, in researching this story, I found a poster on the website forum Reddit, who four years ago had come across the spot where Mike's car had been found. He'd come across it accidentally, but he took pictures of the site, which still featured a barely legible faded poster that asked, who killed Mike Williams? There was a cross in the ground nearly covered by the overgrowth and a piece of paper tucked inside a clear plastic protector that said, Killers are walking among you. Does anyone give a damn? Well, Mike's mom may be gone, but there are people who clearly still give a damn, and tonight's special guest is one of them. After Mike's death, his cousin Belinda founded the Columbiana County Families of Homicide Victims to bring attention to unsolved murders and suspicious deaths. The group maintains a Facebook page called simply CCFHV and a website, ccfhv.com. 
Belinda was also responsible for getting the county its first homicide task force, formed back in 2013 because of Mike's case. Belinda was even inspired to pursue a degree in criminology and completed a master's degree at Kent State University. And now she's a victim's advocate licensed nationally through NOVA. So keep listening because tonight we are welcoming Belinda to our program to talk about her cousin's case. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, tonight we're welcoming Belinda Puchida, who lives in Lisbon and has spent a decade or more looking for her cousin's killers. Belinda, welcome to the program. Thank you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and why this case has just become a personal mission for you? Well, it was kind of strange how it happened. Mike and I both, since we were kids, always had this weird like obsession with serial killers. It was one thing we used to talk about all the time. It was, it was, you know, we all read Stephen King books. We, we, we just had this connection about, you know, the unsolved murders or, or murders in general. And he was here for the 4th of July at our family picnic and we were just catching up on things. He actually bought me a serial killer trading card set as a joke we were laughing about that and everybody in our family was teasing us about it. And then I was living in Stowe, Ohio at the time. I was kind of obsessed with the Scott Peterson murder trial. When that happened, Mike was murdered on August 30th. And no one, I called the sheriff's department as soon as I was told, because we were originally told he died in a car accident. They had thought he had fallen asleep on his way home from work, which we all believed because it had just happened He had fallen asleep on his way home from work a few months prior, too, and he worked third shift. So we kind of, you know, we we believe that. And then the coroner called my aunt back, Mike's mom, that night and said that it was a homicide. And I called the the sheriff's department right away and I said, "Okay, what do we do? Do we make flyers? Do you make flyers? You know, if you've never had someone in your family murdered, you don't know what there's no book on it, what you're supposed to do. Right. And the sheriff at the time told me, no, they don't do anything that we make the flyers if we want flyers out there. And I said, "Okay, what phone number do I put on there? Because I don't want to put on like your emergency line and tie that up. You know, is there another line? He said, no, you can't put our phone number on there. You have to yield those calls yourself. 
and I said, yeah, I said, how am I going to yield those calls myself? I said, what if somebody calls me and says, you know, maple leaf? And I think, oh, it's some, you know, crackhead just making a prank call. And there were maple leaves found in the back of Mike's car. And I wouldn't know that because I'm not an investigator. So a couple of days after that, I mean, we were all kind of, you know, besides the fact that we were all reeling still from what had happened, someone from the BCI called me and told me um, to please make the flyers, put the emergency phone line on, phone number on there, and then they'll get it, you know, they'll get them circulated. And that was kind of it. So there we were again, kind of like, okay, we got these flyers, you know, we want to, we want to let people know if they have information to call the police department, you know, don't call me. I'm not a cop. I'm not an investigator, but call the people that do this, that handle this. A few months went by. Um, the sheriff was no longer in, in office though. Shortly after that, within a couple of months, he got a DUI and was kicked out of office, but that's a whole other story. But he, we had no clue what to do. And I remembered because I was obsessed with the Lacey Peterson case, they had an organization that always spoke for the family called the Carol Sun Carrington Foundation, and they were based out of Modesto. So I called them. And I said, listen, you know, my cousin was murdered. What do we do? We, I have, you know, no one knows what to do. The police aren't telling us anything. You know, I told them the whole story. I got a hold of this wonderful woman named Shelly Strader, whose family member was murdered at Yosemite. And she would talk to me for hours upon hours upon hours on the phone and just tell me things like, whatever you do, keep his name out there. Because if people don't hear about it, they assume it's solved. So get his name out there however you can. And we, I, um, I worked at the Salem newspaper at the time in graphic design, and I designed a T-shirt that just said, who killed Michael Williams? One of my coworkers called the local television station, and they came down and did an interview with me. And I said, if anyone else out there has family members that are murdered, you know, please get a hold of me because I kind of want to know what you've been doing you know, we're new at this. We don't know what to do. Um, my aunt lived in Texas at the time, his mother. And so she, aside from she could barely function due to her own grief, but she had no clue either. So she kind of like said, well, you just handle this for me. Find out what you can find out. And I said, well, Shelly told me, do not let him be forgotten, get his name in the paper, get, do press releases, do whatever you have to. So we did these t-shirts. The television station asked me how I wanted people to get a hold of me. And I said, put my phone number on there. And they said, oh no, no, you don't want that. You know, you'll have everybody calling you. And, and I said, listen, a lot of people in Columbia County don't have internet access. They're not, you know, well-versed with computers, put my phone number on there. So she put my phone number on there, and that night I received three calls from three different families that had unsolved murders in our county. Yes. The homicide task force that you started, did, yes. did the sheriff's department participate in that? They did. What had originally happened is I found out, you know, because it's a process, you just find stuff out. Mahoning and Trumbull County both had a homicide task force. And I went to our prosecutor, Bob Heron, and I asked him why we didn't have one. And he said, well, I tried to get one started years ago and none of the officers would get on board with it. You know, nobody wants to work for free. 
basically. And that's what the task force included. If there's a homicide, say, in Lisbon, everybody come to Lisbon. Lisbon takes the lead and then assigns different officers from different departments. And then they have to do the same if there's a homicide in their jurisdiction. And he said, I couldn't get anybody to, to do anything. He said, I'll tell you what, if you can get four chiefs of police or detectives to come to a meeting, we'll have your homicide task force. So I worked with um, the head of the homicide task force in Mahoning County, and we drew up bylines and um, uh, bylaws and contracts. And I went and visited every police department in our county, invited them to the meeting, and they all showed up. We had one police department that did not come in the county, but every other police department showed up. So they all signed the contracts, they all did the bylaws, they all jumped on board with it, and it was formed. Well, good for you. Do they still meet regularly? They do. Um, they changed uh, the name of it from the Homicide Task Force to the Major Crimes Task Force. But after the first meeting, I was not privileged to go to any of the meetings because their reasoning, and I do kind of understand it, is that, that one of the things that they were supposed to do is bring cold cases or cases within their jurisdiction that they were having trouble solving and have fresh eyes look at them. And because there are things in those reports that, uh, that me as just a citizen, you know, cannot have access to, right. they would not allow me in those meetings, which I understood that, but okay. uh, yeah, they still meet, um, they still meet regularly. I do not know if, um, they have looked at other cases, you know, within the jurisdiction. I don't know if that's ever happened because a couple people that have gone have told me that that's something that they never really got around to. So that I'm not sure about, but. Well, before we discuss more specifics about Michael's case, why don't you tell us a little bit more about him? We were able to share some that we picked up from your website that was written about by his mom. But tell mm -hmm. us, Tell us about him personally. What was he like? Mike was a little bit of a firecracker. He he was hilariously funny, but not at anyone's expense. He was just he just saw the the humor in everything. And he chronically picked on me. He always called me trouble. He was he was younger. He was very very good looking, which was really strange to me at his funeral because to me, in my mind's eye, he will always be this little 12-year-old kid that was, you know, younger than me, a little punk, my brother's age, you know, that, and when we were at his funeral, all these women were sobbing and sobbing and talking about how gorgeous he was. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so creepy. I mean, he's a kid. And then it just, when I was designing his flyer, it was like, wow, he really grew up to be this gorgeous man that, you know, as a family member, I, I didn't see it, but he was, he was um, very good looking. He was, he kind of had low self-esteem. I mean, he was always working out. He always felt that it wasn't, you know, where he wanted to be. He needed to push harder. He needed to do more. He worked at VM North Star Steel and was actually getting ready to retire. And we talked about that on the 4th about because to me, again, that was so strange that someone so young would be able to retire, but he had been there since high school. And that's he crazy. Had he just, was 31 yeah. when he died, right? Yes, 37. 37. Oh yeah. my gosh, to die that, and, to retire that young. Yeah. And, and we were just, you know, he had. 
he had property down the right down the road from my house. He had a double wide trailer and then he had like four or five trailers on that lot that he had rented out. And then he bought this property out uh, actually where he was murdered and it, he called it his little piece of heaven. And it was he had a trailer sitting up at the top of the lot and he was building the house behind him. And he had the foundation laid for the, for the house. And it was just this gorgeous piece of property out in the middle of nowhere. He had horses. You know, he was just a country boy at heart. And he um, had been divorced. He actually married uh, one of my best friends from high school. And they had been married. And they got divorced. But they remained very, very good friends. And he had just started dating this girl. Everyone told, you know, he didn't talk about her at all at the picnic on the 4th of July. He didn't mention her at all. In fact, we were talking about Angel, his ex-wife, who was my friend. And and I said to him, I'm like, well, when are you going to settle down again and, you know, have a pop a couple kids out? And, and he said, you know me, there's only been one woman for me. And that's not happening again. And I knew he was talking about Angel. Wow. And then when he was murdered, this rosy girl showed up and apparently he had been dating her for you know a couple months and or you know his mom had not met her it was not even anything that serious well you must have some theories by now uh, what do you think happened i have never changed my opinion on what happened i've always believed that mike was killed by someone that he thought was a friend I never believed, uh, most people, and I know my aunt did emphatically believe that Rosie's ex-boyfriend was the one that killed Mike because um, when Mike had started dating her, there was an incident where her ex-boyfriend showed up on Mike's property and Mike chased him off the property. This was just weeks before he was killed. And that seemed to be where everybody, you know, landed through the whole thing. But I never believed that. I always felt that... It was somebody that he trusted because I don't believe he would have ever turned his back on someone that he didn't trust. And the way he was found in his car, he had been out of the car and put back in the car. So when I got the first phone call from the BCI and the sheriff, they called me up at my house in Stowe and they asked me if... I knew of any reason that Mike would have stopped, you know, when it's raining outside, why he would have stopped for someone. And I said, it could have been anybody. If someone's car was pulled over, he would have definitely stopped to try to help. You know, if it was somebody he knew, he would have stopped. He, if it was somebody, he, you know, he was just, he was just a good hearted person. So, you know, it, it could have been anybody. They could have been faking, you know, car trouble. Who knows? So but, if it was somebody um, he always, knew, then he must have been stalked because it would have been somebody who knew his routine, knew he was coming down that road, knew what Mike would do if he had pulled over and had Mike pull right. over. Is that your idea? That's my idea because I there was a lot of speculation about people, passerbyers saw people hiding in the woods and stuff like that. And there was a someone spotted a black truck over in that area in his driveway or something. And believe me, we went months and months and months, I mean, actually probably years of hunting down black trucks and writing license plate numbers down and doing all that kind of stuff. And then the BCI dismissed that and said they don't believe there ever was a black truck. That was just something 
somebody had said somewhere. And I just always, you know, Mike's biggest downfall, I think, was that he gave people answers that he probably shouldn't have. There were a couple of his friends that I thought were really creepy people. And Mike knew how I felt because I'm not one to hold back. And he would always just say, you know, simmer down fireball. They're okay. They're all right. You know what I mean? And he, it, it just, I just always felt that it was somebody that he trusted or someone that he had helped that, you know, decided they were envious of him. I think it was completely out of jealousy. We know it wasn't a robbery. We know, you know, I don't believe it was over this girl he had been dating, not even a couple of months. I think it was somebody that had a, you know, I mean, Mike was good looking and, and he had a lot of attention from women and he had this beautiful farm and he had four wheelers and horses and everybody loved him and, nice cars and you know what I mean he was just I think it was someone that that hated him for it do you think at all that there could have been more than one person involved because the idea of beating him as badly as he was beaten him not being able to defend himself against one person um, being put back in the car do you at all think maybe there were two or more people involved Oh, I'm, I don't believe it was just one person. I think that there was at least two or three because Mike would have, he would have fought. And the fact that he had no defensive wounds right off the bat tells you he was caught off guard. And I was told years ago, I, I wish I could even remember, I don't remember honestly who told me. It was somebody in law enforcement said that they believe that the first blow to his head rendered him unconscious and the rest of it happened afterwards. But um, I don't know. He, there's no way I don't think that one person could do that. Mike was not a little, I mean, he was short, but he was not a little guy. And I think it would take, it would have taken a couple people just to carry him, put him back in his car. And I don't think that, who, I think whoever did it was a coward. And I don't think that they... I think that they would need strength in numbers, if that makes sense, because I don't think it's something that they could do. I don't think it's something they'd have the guts to do on their own. I mean, who gets up at nine o'clock in the morning to kill someone? I mean, seriously, <laughs> unless you've been up all night. You know, he was he right. was declared dead at nine eleven in the morning. Do you think there are people in town that have the answers to this other than the killers? Do you think there are people oh, who know what happened and they're just not telling? Absolutely. I'm, uh, and I, I, that's why we put that on his billboard. Somebody knows something. I mean, Columbia County is not that big. It's not that big of an area. And people talk here. And when I first started my organization, I went out to every fair festival, parade, everything in the county that I could find to get information. And, you know, I had my mass amounts of flyers that I would set up at tables and give people flyers to take with them to call the police. And and they just didn't. Or they would call with, you know, my best friends, ex-wives, cousins, three times removed, said this was the reason. Or, you know, there was definitely... 
always the it was it had to be drug related or he was messing with somebody's wife. His toxicology report was clean. He did not ever use drugs. He wouldn't even take an aspirin. He was very much about his health and body and you know, and Mike absolutely hated people that had extramarital affairs. You know, that's what ruined his marriage. He was not about to start dating someone that was married or, you know, and it was just, but they said the same thing about every single one of our victims, pretty much. It was always, oh, it had to be drugs or another woman scenario. But I believe there's people out there that know exactly what happened. I believe there were people that were there and just will not come forward for whatever reason. They don't care. They don't regret it. They don't have faith in law enforcement, whatever their excuse is. That has to be so frustrating to to think that there are people who hold the answer to this and just are not brave enough to come forward and solve this. That that's just heartbreaking. Well, we had a I had a conversation with um, Jim Ciotti from the BCI one time years and years ago, and he said he said something that really made a lot of sense to me. He said, "Why?" He goes, you have to understand, even if they do catch who killed Mike, you may never know why. Because I kept saying, we just want to know why. You know, why him? What reason could they possibly have? And he said, you have to understand, there's a lot of times you might not ever get the why. He said, let me ask you this. If you had a choice, you could either catch Mike's killer and they'd go to prison for the rest of their life, but they would never tell you why. Or you would want to know the reason behind what happened. Which one would help you sleep at night? And me and my aunt both said, we want to know why. Wow. And that's interesting. He said, said, that's, you know, that's not exactly what most people would say. And I said, but we knew him. And, you know, you hear, I, I guess even as much as I was into murderers and serial killers and all that stuff and the research I had done on that, I never, I never looked at it in any other way other than I want to know why what made you pick that person what made you pick that victim what made that person a victim that's always just been you know and that's why my you know when I went back to school my area of study was behavior I want to know why and we changed the slogan to CCFHV in 2011 to because why matters and I've just always, you know, we want to know why. And yeah. Well, clearly the the mystery here is so much more than just who killed him, but understanding right. why and how that question haunts you and your family. I yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh folks, if you thank want you. to stay updated with this case, Again, if you're on Facebook, just search for CCFHV, and it will take you to her web, her uh, Facebook page, and then also the website, ccfhv.com. And uh, if you have any information on this case, boy, I, I sure would love to see somebody come forward. And, you know, I've had police officers tell me before, sometimes you have to wait for somebody to die. Somebody feels that their safety is at risk and it can take decades but somebody will die and then this person who has the information will come forward then i hope you don't have to wait that long but that often seems to be the case
Belinda, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Good thank luck. You. Thank you. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Cutler Station is from Vincent. That's a small community in southeast Ohio near the Ohio River. Band members are John Evans, Kirby Evans, Steve Lipscomb, and Jason Swiger. The band is a group of friends and brothers who genuinely love playing and making original music together. They've been doing it for more than 20 years, and clearly they have more to offer because they are dropping a brand new album later this month. It's called Meet No Sides. That's Meet, M-E-A-T. And their first single off that album is Wither Away. That's the song we're featuring tonight. Be sure to find and follow these guys on Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify. And check out their website, CutlerStation.com. Well, let's have another listen to Wither Away by Cutler Station. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.